Hello and welcome to the podcast for the August 2010 issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm delighted to be joined by Helen Frankish who is editor of The Lancet Neurology. Helen, let's start with the Cossacks trial. Cossacks doesn't have a K in it in this, <laughs> <laughs> this time, I noticed. But actually, this is dealing with an important clinical question, isn't it? This is for people who have presented with acute stroke, but who have been taking antihypertensive therapy. The issue being, am I correct, should they continue or stop? That's right. And patients who've had a stroke often have raised blood pressure on admission to hospital. And high blood pressure is associated with a poor prognosis. And this increased blood pressure falls naturally a few days after a stroke. But whether and how to treat this high blood pressure during the acute stroke period is controversial because of concerns that reducing blood pressure might cause cerebral ischemia. And about half of patients, as you said, are already taking blood pressure lowering drugs when they have a stroke and whether to continue or stop these drugs in the acute stroke period is a very common dilemma that's faced by clinicians. So Helen, go on and briefly tell us about the design and key findings from this study. So in this study, patients with acute stroke who were already taking blood pressure lowering drugs were randomly assigned to either continue or stop their existing antihypertensive drugs. And over 750 patients with mild stroke were enrolled from nearly 50 centres in the UK. And the difference in blood pressure at two weeks between patients that continued their blood pressure lowering drugs and those that stopped was 13 millimetres of mercury but there was no significant difference between the groups in the proportions of patients who reached the primary endpoint which was death or dependency two weeks after a stroke and about 20% of patients in each group reached the primary endpoint. However because of slow recruitment and lack of funding the trial was stopped early and only about a quarter of the planned sample size was recruited. The study was underpowered to detect a difference in the primary outcome but encouragingly lower blood pressure levels in patients who continued with their antihypertensive drugs were not associated with an increase in adverse events. So Helen, whilst these results appear neutral, do you think there are implications for clinical management and also for future research priorities? Well, I think so, because although uh, the study wasn't powered to detect a clinical difference, on the plus side, lowering blood pressure wasn't shown to be harmful. So these results support the continuation of ongoing trials that are addressing this issue. And several such trials are ongoing, and we look forward to the results of those becoming available in the next few years. And finally, Helen, on on this one, there is a linked comment, a a reflection and reaction. What are the thoughts of uh, the authors here? Well, Craig Anderson, who is the principal investigator of the Interact 2 study, which is a study that's investigating blood pressure lowering in acute intracerebral hemorrhage, he says that the safety data are useful in helping to guide clinical practice and that antihypertensive drugs can be used safely in nearly all patients with mildly disabling or non-disabling stroke or TIA because of the relatively modest size and speed of the blood pressure reduction. Next, Helen, another article, and this is about the autoimmune disease, limbic encephalitis. Some definitions here, Helen, if you could just remind us what limbic encephalitis is and what the aims were of this study. 
So limbic encephalitis is an autoimmune disorder in which patients develop seizures and neuropsychiatric symptoms such as memory loss, changes in behaviour and psychosis. And until now, voltage-gated potassium channels in the synapse were thought to be the target of these autoantibodies. However, Joseph Dalmau and colleagues found that antibodies from patients with limbic encephalitis didn't react with cells that express voltage-gated sodium channels. And so they set out to identify the real autoantigen associated with limbic encephalitis. So clearly some techniques involved there. Do you want to just run through the design of their study? So the researchers analysed serum and CSF from 57 patients who had limbic encephalitis and 148 control patients who had other disorders. And they used serum from patients with limbic encephalitis to precipitate the antigen which was then characterised using mass spectrometry. And using these techniques, the researchers discovered that the antigen was in fact a protein called leucine-rich glioma inactivated 1, or LGI1, which is thought to have a role in synaptic transmission. And all 57 patients with limbic encephalitis, but none of the controls, were found to have antibodies against LGI1. So Helen, do comment on these findings and what the author's how the authors interpret uh, the findings from this study. Antibodies against LGI-1 are thought to cause excitability, which results in seizures and the other symptoms of limbic encephalitis. And the authors suggest that the identification of LGI-1 as the true autoantigen should lead to a reclassification of autoimmune disorders related to voltage-gated potassium channels. So, for instance, the term limbic encephalitis associated with antibodies against voltage-gated potassium channels should now be changed to limbic encephalitis associated with LGI-1 antibodies. And second, because LGI-1 is a secreted protein and not an ion channel, limbic encephalitis can no longer be thought of as a channelopathy. And what do the comment authors think about this? Well, Jerome Onorat suggests that the identification of LGI-1 as the target antigen will lead to a better understanding of the mechanisms underlying limbic encephalitis and could lead to new treatments for this disorder. And he also suggests that LGI-1 could have an important role in synaptic organisation and therefore might have wider relevance for other neurological conditions. And studies on LGI-1 might therefore eventually lead to new therapeutic strategies for conditions such as epilepsy, mood disorders and Alzheimer's disease. Finally, Helen, let's talk about Huntington's disease and specifically a news feature about HD in TLN this month. Um, What's going on here? So this feature is based on an all-party parliamentary group that's been set up to investigate the prevalence of Huntington's disease in the UK. And experts believe that prevalence of Huntington's disease in the UK might have been underestimated. And we're very fortunate in that we can now hear from a leading expert in Huntington's disease, Professor Sarah Tabrizi, who is from the Institute of Neurology at University College London in the United Kingdom, because the Huntington's piece, both here in the Lancet Neurology, also linked to some content in the Lancet Weekly Journal, was presented recently at a press conference in London. So let's now hear from Professor Sarah Tabrizi. Huntington's disease is an inherited autosomal dominant neurodegenerative disease of the brain. The disease starts in most people around the age of 40, but it can be much younger than that or it can be much older. There's cases well described 
uh, in the teens, and we see many people under the age of 20, and it can be described in old age, but it starts around the age of 40. And it causes a triad of symptoms, three different areas of symptoms. It causes a movement disorder, which gives rise to uncontrolled movements called chorea of all the limbs. It also causes significant emotional and psychiatric symptoms, and it also causes a progressive dementia. It progresses inexorably until death, which occurs about 15 to 20 years after onset. So it's a relatively slowly progressive disorder. And as the disorder progresses, people also lose the ability to look after themselves, the ability to talk, and the ability to swallow. So by end stage, they're unable to speak, unable to swallow, and are completely dependent. It's inherited as an autosomal dominant, which means that if you have an affected parent, you are at 50-50 risk of inheriting the gene. And it's what we call fully penetrant. So if you inherit the gene, you will develop the disease at some point in in your life. It doesn't skip generations. It affects males and females equally. The gene is found on chromosome 4, and the gene encodes a protein called Huntington. And the abnormality is found at the beginning of this gene, and it causes an expansion of a repeating sequence called CAG. And all of us have a Huntington gene, but we have about 17 to 18 CAGs in our Huntington gene. If you have a mutant Huntington gene, you have more than 40 of these CAG repeats. And there's a very clear relationship. If you inherit 40 or more of these repeating CAG repeats, you will develop the disease. A great deal of work has gone on to understand the gene and the role of the protein Huntington in the pathogenesis of the disease. The the genetic test is is not that expensive to run. It costs about £100 to do in the lab. Since 1993, we've been able to now offer direct genetic testing to individuals and families. And there's several different types of genetic testing that we offer. The first is when someone, they have an affected parent, they've watched an affected parent with the disease, and they then themselves become worried that they have symptoms of the disease. And they typically see a neurologist, and that's when we do what we call a diagnostic genetic test, and that's to make the diagnosis of Huntington's disease. About 40% of people we see don't have a family history that they are aware of. They may have been adopted. There's about a 10% non-paternity figures in this country. Many people didn't know about it because it was kept hidden. There would be relatives that were in mental asylums. Subjects would say that they had married into a family and it was never discussed that there was Huntington's disease until one a parent developed symptoms. There are many different reasons for there not being an apparent family history and that's a diagnostic test so they have symptoms of the disease. Another type of genetic test that we do that Huntington's really is the vanguard disorder in this respect for genetics because of its dominant inheritance, is what we call predictive genetic testing. And that's a a series of genetic counselling, a series of genetic counselling appointments that a person undergoes when they know they have an affected parent and they are at risk of the disease. And you can then decide to choose whether you want to have a test to know that you're going to develop the disease in the future, and it's called a predictive genetic test. And when you get the result... It's either positive or negative, it's 50-50. If you carry the gene, you will develop the disease. And so some people deal with that in different ways. Some people want to know and some people don't. And Charles Sabine, who's here, is a, is a positive gene carrier and is discussing throughout the, uh, the world about Huntington's disease and, and raising its awareness. The th- other types of testing we do are prenatal testing, 
for reproductive reasons and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis testing for people who want to have embryo exclusion and IVF. We now offer routinely genetic testing. Predictive testing has to have a series of genetic counselling appointments and also apps informed consent because it's never done against people's will for, because you can't test some people for genetic disorders in that way. Although the gene was cloned 17 years ago, there has been a huge inroads into understanding how the gene and the abnormal protein causes the disease. I think a basic understanding of Huntington's disease at the molecular and cellular level is not what's holding therapeutics back. And I think we're at the stage now about how do we target, how do we pharmacologically target all these different targets or that have been identified and how do we intervene in subjects with early stage disease and gene carriers. The other reason that a lot of people now think about having the test is because research is now focusing on that group of people who are gene carriers. They carry the gene but are completely well and by understanding how the gene is affecting their brain we may be able to develop treatments which is what we're working on to intervene before symptom onset because we have a diagnostic genetic test, and no other neurodegenerative disease has that. We have the advantage over Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, and this is why HD research is is a model disease in a way, because we can intervene theoretically before disease onset. So there is a lot being now understood, and we hope to be able to go into clinical trials in early stage and pre-manifest, pre-symptomatic stage in the next few years. So that was Professor Sarah Tabrizi giving us very much a background and overview of, of the issue. Actually, in the news feature itself, the story is to do with prevalence estimates, isn't it? That's right. And similar to other Western countries, the prevalence of Huntington's disease in the UK is about seven cases per 100,000 people. However, figures from the charity, the Huntington's Disease Association, based on the number of patients that it cares for, suggests that the prevalence could be at least double that. The charity is looking after 6,000. 376 patients in England alone and if you extrapolate those figures to the whole of the UK this would give a prevalence of more like 12 per 100,000. And there are several reasons for this underestimate. First, the prevalence figures were derived from studies done several years ago before there was a genetic test and when the diagnosis was made on clinical features alone. And second, the stigma associated with a history of Huntington's disease may encourage families to hide the disease. And also, Helen, you've picked up Huntington's, haven't you, in the editorial this month? In the editorial, we focus on the stigma and discrimination against people at risk of Huntington's disease. So, for example, as we mentioned in the editorial, in a survey of over 200 people in Canada who were at risk of Huntington's disease, 40% of people had experienced some form of discrimination, either from insurance companies in the form of insurance rejection or increased premiums, from family members when making decisions about whether to have children, and also some people reported that they'd experienced discrimination in the workplace. And the discrimination that people at risk of Huntington's disease face intensifies their suffering and makes it much more difficult to address their real needs. And we conclude in the editorial that legislation is needed to prevent employers and insurance companies from using genetic information to discriminate against people with Huntington's disease. And also public education strategies are needed to improve the understanding and awareness of genetics in order to tackle the social stigma associated with a diagnosis of Huntington's disease. 
Excellent. Well, it's a really fascinating topic, that, Helen, and a very interesting issue, I have to say, this month, the August issue of The Lancet Neurology. Those were some of the highlights. Many thanks to Helen Frankish and to you all for listening. We'll see you next month.